0: The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356 9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money.
1: Well, welcome everybody, this is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On The Money. I'm here with my regular guest, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, it's been three weeks. Yeah, so. good
0: to be, be back. I missed you. Yeah.
1: And certified financial planner professional, Ryan Repka, who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management here in Champaign-Urbana. Ryan, good Good
2: morning. morning. You didn't
1: miss me. <laughs> I just saw you last night. I guess that's true. I just saw you last night and those two kitties running you wild. Yeah, over at the swimming pool. You can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at WDWS. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. How's the world treating you the last few weeks, Fred? Fine. uh, Everybody's excited today about inflation. Right. Highest since
0: 2008. Everybody's, it seems to be uh, (laughs) the fear of the day. Right. Well, I think there's a legitimate uh, fear in the long term. The real question is whether this is just a transitory situation, which I think most people believe is the case, or whether it's going to be a movement back into a long-term kind of problem. And the, the situation now is we're comparing it to a year ago when the year ago was not uh, a particularly uh, vibrant time, so prices didn't go up much for a long time. Now we're uh, getting back closer and closer to the normal, plus we also have a, a number of bottlenecks in the situation where people can't uh, uh, buy what they want to buy and the cars aren't available, they're selling over their retail price, and, yeah. uh, and that's probably not going to last forever. So I think part of this is going to, uh, recede fairly fairly quickly. But again, we still have the, the fact that we spent huge amounts of money and over the long term we still have to be worried about inflation. But I think this particular reading is not necessarily a warning sign. And again, we we come back to the, the same old thing almost every time. If you look at interest rates, interest rates aren't building in uh, a, yeah. a lot of the of inflation over the next several years.
1: Yeah, it seems like uh, when, or maybe it's been a couple of weeks now, when Fed Chairman Powell uh, and Governor Bullard, they indicated that they were keenly aware of that risk. Yeah. Uh, and, and basically ready to act as they needed to. And really from that point, if you look at the classic inflation hedges like gold and oil and some, well, not oil so much, but uh, some of the classic, you know, they began to decline. Uh, I looked at the 10-year treasury last i looked it was hovering around 1.3 i don't know where right. it's been the last few days but those are certainly market indicators that that you know that the chairman's going to get it right and in, and this inflation probably is more about bottom, you know when you think about the amount of cash that people are sitting on right now record never never had this much yeah. literal cash and savings checkings etc at a time when there's just a lot of shortages i mean, right. kind of Intuitively, it makes sense that, okay, that's what's going to happen. And maybe it's a high class problem. I mean, we're not in a deflationary depression. Right. Uh, you know, may, uh, you, a year and not quite a year and a half ago, I might have been cheering for a little bit yeah, <laughs> higher yeah. inflation, but it, yeah. it seems like the market's taken Fed Chairman Powell at his word and not too
0: excited about it. Yeah. Inflation. And the Fed, uh, in a sense, said that uh, they weren't too worried about exceeding the 2% goal for a while. I don't, think, I don't think they were thinking about exceeding it by. Uh, 5% to, uh, compared to 2 but uh, still, I think they're not worried about it in the short run. And I
1: didn't see, of the roughly 5% increase year-over-year year inflation, how much of that was food and energy, but yeah. you know, those are really volatile sectors. And like you say, if you, right. if you look at oil prices compared to where they were a year ago, just the fact that we were in a re- deep
0: recession yeah. uh, is going to explain something. Yeah, it's a kind of a strange world because everyone's talking about decarbonization, but yet coal and oil are both... Uh, at pretty high prices now. Are
1: you getting many concerns, Ryan, from clients voicing yet? Any, what are you going to do about
2: inflation or is they seem to be settled down? I think for the most part, it's settled down. It may be ticked up a little bit, maybe a couple months ago. I think that the common question is just, you know, what would we do? The question is just, do we have a plan? What would we do in that case? And for the vast majority of our clients, we're already insulating those, those fears by the, the sheer, nature of investing in stocks or equities, because for most people, you can't afford to live 20, 30 years in retirement, keep up with a rising cost world by investing strictly or or mostly in bonds or cash instruments. So you have to have a a decent amount of your investments in stocks. Stocks, if you look over a period of 30 years, generally um, are going to have a rising income stream from dividends. Uh, dividends can look at five to six percent um, over a long period 30 you know 30 plus years of data right. um, and when you look at inflation being around three percent you know right right around now I mean right. that, that keeps up with inflation but it doesn't mean it'll do that going forward but we're, we're putting people in the the right position to be able to offset even just normal inflation increases here I even wrote uh, you know, as you know, I've been trying to finish my newsletter.
1: I write a quarterly newsletter for our clients and anybody else that's interested. We do have a number of people that just that aren't clients but enjoy the quarterly newsletter. You feel free to call us if you want to get that. But I wrote that about, in essence, I was trying to, what you just highlighted is mainstream equities. You know the great companies of America and the world have certainly shown themselves to be really good inflation hedges, given enough time. I mean, we're talking about not, I don't know about the next year or three years or five years, but they've certainly proven themselves. And I went back to approximately the year I was born. I was born towards the tail end of 1959, so I just rounded it to 60. And you look at the record of the 500 largest companies in America, and I wrote about how they're up 70 times in price, 70-fold, the dividend income stream has risen by a factor of 30 so it's 30 times higher today than it was then and the consumer price index has gone up about by a factor of about 9 so it certainly suggests to me again I'm the first one to say there's no facts about the futures but if I had to bet I would bet that some resemblance of that uh, takes you know takes place though we but well, we'll never know but They've definitely proven themselves as to be a long-term good, long-term hedge against inflation, and more importantly, a, a significant generator of real wealth—real wealth net of taxes and inflation. Right. But does it mean over the next ten years, if we have high inflation, you know, we get, we get a replay of '68 through? Oh, well, you pick your <laughs> pick your years, but you know, you can go ten, eleven, twelve years where you know the stock market went nowhere and inflation was kind of high. So, but following that we saw the stock market go up by a factor of 15 times so again appropriate time horizon i think that's where people get a little frustrated sometimes fred is the people like me i'll say oh you know over the over the long term which i don't really i like i prefer to use lifetime but to the 75 year old they say well okay well, i may not yeah. be looking at 30 years you know but that of course that has to be taken into consideration of what your asset allocation is and and measured it's not just blindly Put all your money in stocks and uh, you know and life would be good it's it's just saying they've proven themselves
0: as a pretty important component to most people's yeah, retirement and, and right now we're in that uh, situation where your uh, return on least short term fixed income is clearly negative uh, yeah it, it a combination of taxes and inflation so if you have uh, three or four or five percent inflation plus you paid taxes on the uh, nominal gains you're, you're below zero uh, so it's a, it's a difficult situation for and people. And that's a
1: changed world because, you know, we think of the classic 60-40 portfolio, Ryan, where 60% is in mainstream equities, the great companies of America and the world, if you will, and 40% in fixed income producing securities. Well, over most of my lifetime, you know, that 40% of the portfolio might have had a yield of 5 or 6 7%, 4%, somewhere in that zone. And now when you're really looking at returns for short-term high-quality fixed income, it varies. You know, just not good rates, uh, I think that it certainly caused a lot of people in our industry to suggest that, well, maybe that calls for a higher equity allocation. Um, do you think that's necessarily
0: true or, you know, you're not changing your allocations based on low... Right. And the other thing is that uh, uh, wanting to happen doesn't make it happen. Right. A, a lot of pension funds are saying, well, we're not meeting our expected rate of return, so we have to uh, ramp up something or other, take more uh, you know, private equity, private lending, a whole bunch of things. And the hope there is that that's going to make up for the uh, uh, expected lower rates of return. But just because you want it doesn't mean you can get it. And in, in any case, if you get the higher return, you're taking on more risk as well.
1: It always makes you wonder how fearful you would have to be if you're an investor and you say, oh, I just have to buy treasuries. I'm afraid of the stock market. Just, Just how fearful you would have to be to sign up for a 1.5% yield for the next 10 years, knowing that the inflation target itself is 2%. I mean, right. that, 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 that's almost hard to get your your mind around how fearful you would have yeah, to be the, to make that exchange.
0: The real, uh, I, don't, I don't think this is much a dilemma for people who have been in for a long time and have the allocation already. If if someone dropped uh, a huge amount of money on you now, I said, what should you do? That's a more challenging kind of thing because Again, we're not market timers, but right. the uh, stock market is uh, presumably at uh, a pretty high level right now compared to, to most situations. So sure. yeah. there aren't a lot of good choices either way.
1: No. I mean, of course, uh, on our first day of retirement, I suppose it's always a little bit scary. Probably less scary is, is what you're saying when you have a CD that's earning 9%. Or,
0: or if you have if you have a 60-40 ratio that's been there for a long time. And, of course. Uh, but if you you're plop down X amount of money and you have to go 60-40 uh, afresh, that's a a little more scary kind of situation.
1: And that is true. And I think that's something that advisors have to work with their clients. Expect, you know, happiness always comes down to expectations. And I think when you have, I, I think some people are making a case that the stock market certainly isn't cheap and what you pay for things does matter when it comes to your future returns in the next block of time. But it's certainly something that You've seen me, and you know, I think a lot of us have adopted the idea that yeah, that person with stars in their eyes, their first day of retirement, and and they have this big chunk of money that needs to fund partially fund the next two to three decades. Um, what are your workarounds? How do you deal with that from an expectation
2: standpoint? It, it comes down to the person, like you say, you you know, you gauge how big their eyes are, and <laughs> as they're walking into retirement. For most people, I I remind them that they were invested presumably like in a 401k, for example. They were invested in a 401k, in an allocation, all the way up until their last day of walking out of work. And, you know, there's really not a tremendous difference. You still have to have investments to, to run your lifestyle. So for most people, just a simple conversation like that explains that, yeah, I was already invested. I had no more risk then than I do now. Now it's just kind of transformed a little. I'm not getting a paycheck. I'm getting income off of my investments. So for most people, it's not a big deal to go right into the allocation, especially if they're just getting like a, a 401k rollover distribution. It just comes in the form of a check.
1: Then I'll hit you with a different scenario. Mm-hmm. I, I've i been working for this company for 30 or 35 years. Now they're telling me I can have this check for $750,000, or I can have an income of uh, 4000 a month for mm-hmm. the rest of my life. Fixed, no cost of living. Uh, Now that person says, you know, it seems to me it probably might make sense for me to take that lump sum for a variety of reasons for some people. It's like I would like to leave something for the people and the institutions I dearly love. It might be, I I understand the lifetime deal about investing, but Ryan, I'm scared to death. Uh, I feel like I could write the book, be the author (laughs) of the book, How Come Investments Work Until I Buy Them. But you know, and you've created this plan that says, "Look, the only way you're going to make it out alive and do all the things that you've told me you want to do, Mister mm-hmm. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you need to have at least at some point sixty percent of your or seventy percent of your money in the stock market or fifty percent doesn't matter, mm-hmm. but a, a, a significant, let's say a half or more." Uh what what are your workarounds if they say, "Ryan, we get that. I'm just
2: uh, I, I'm I just scared. won't be able to sleep. I'm scared." Yeah, certainly. So you just have ways to get into it. So, you know, if you're if you're giving this scenario where they're given an option of having like a they buy into like an annuity income stream where the the payments are protected, you just say, you know, listen, here's the benefits of this scenario. You have payment streams that are guaranteed for life. The downsides, of course, are not going to keep up with inflation in most cases. Um, And then, yeah. And then, of course, you have the ability of not being able to give money at the end of that. And most annuity streams, you're not going to be able to gift money at the end. But the alternative would be if you say, well, if I, I don't think that's necessarily the route for me, and I still believe in some form or fashion in the investment of my rollover, my my assets that I work so hard for, you can do a down payment. And what we mean by that is you just simply uh, agree that at a certain point in the future, maybe six months, maybe a year, you're going to get to that allocation. Maybe you call it 50% stocks, 50% bonds, but we're not gonna do it in one day. Um, it helps ease the fear of regret. Because nothing's worse than investing your dollars today only to find that you are the most unlucky investor in the world, and we go into a let's call it a perfectly normal 20 or 30 percent um, market decline just out of sheer you know misfortune in the timing, um, and that's always uh, an option. You know we we expect them roughly once every five years, if history's any guide. It doesn't mean it'll be sooner or later. It could be at any point, but historically speaking. That's what we should expect. So I think setting expectations is helpful. And for someone that says, okay, it could happen uh in any time, once every five years, that's it's just too big of a risk. Well let's maybe start you out in an allocation of thirty or forty percent stocks, sixty, seventy percent bonds, and then over a period of time, maybe every month, we little we do a little bit of rebalancing where we're buying more stocks and selling some of the bonds to get to that higher allocation. So dollar
1: cost averaging into that position. Mm-hmm. Um what do you do? Let's suppose you're three months into it, and we get this decline in the broad stock market of ten or fifteen percent. Do you speed it up?
2: Yeah, certainly. You can always exercise that discretion, with the caveat, of course, that I never know if that right. if that's you know going to be the low. No one will. So we can take these little uh, you know what some people would be like fearful of these 10, 15 percent declines, and use it to an advantage in the event where someone is dollar cost averaging into that position, eventually getting up to maybe 50% Mm -hmm. stocks, uh, 50% bonds, and use that with the perspective that we're long-term investors. We're not using it from the perspective of I'm trying to time the market and saying that I'm buying in the the low point, but much rather saying uh, I can say probably with great certainty without knowing that the prices that we'll see in 20 years from now are going to be a lot higher than they are today.
0: Do you have a question, problem of uh, sort of bringing people's expectations down to earth? I I read an article recently saying that the, you just ask someone, a typical investor who's not a professional, what do you expect, all 12%, 14 15% returns, and uh, we're probably saying 8% is not bad.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh,
0: so I'll, I'll take a stab at that one too, Ryan, and you can
1: give, give me your thoughts. You know, as I sh- kind of said earlier, yeah, expectations are really, you know – it's, you might just say happiness is the different, you know, is your expectations minus reality, uh, might be a way to think about it. We generally never, at least I can't think of a, a time in recent history, at least, where we ever talk about what we think returns are going to be. I think we've been real careful, and I think this has worked to our advantage of saying, look, let's just admit we don't know what returns are going to be, but we can get a pretty decent concept, Fred, of, what return distribution, and it's going to be pretty wide on the front end. And let's build a plan so that if we have unfortunate timing, just by sheer luck, randomness, that we've already anticipated that that could happen, and that shouldn't really have any material impact on the plan. But you're right, expectations, I think we might have mentioned it, or at least I read an article where I think 750 investors were uh, polled, and they thought 17.5% percent after inflation <laughs> return was what they would yeah, expect. Not bad.
0: Would, the question is where. <laughs> if you well, know, yeah, <laughs>
1: and I, in fact, in my most recent client newsletter that I wrote, is I mentioned that uh, study, and I said, you know, so I pulled out Paul's occasion, a periodic lifeboat drill part of let's get ready okay. for, uh, from an emotional standpoint, for a typical decline. Look, it's been 404 days since we've had a 10% correction. They, they're usually like a crosstown bus. Uh, it's been 240 days since we've even had a 5% decline in the stock in the broad U.S. market. Yeah. It's been pretty placid, and mm-hmm. and so that's why getting into these expectations. You don't really talk too much, do you, about here's what return. I think that's probably a mistake because people would get anchored to that. If I said your 60-40 portfolio has an expected return of 8.5%, well, first of all, that doesn't mean compounded. Uh, and... Yeah, there is a caller online. See if I would just pay attention. <laughs> um, so those are things that you just have to, you know, consider. Yep. So I think we'll go ahead and see. We do have an email, and plus we're going to go to a call. We're going to go to Patty on line one. Patty, thanks for calling.
0: Hi. Yes. Um, I just, I've been listening to you guys for a while and was wondering, in today's time, how, what is your recommendation for stocks versus fixed when you're retired?
1: So, Ryan, go ahead with that. I'll preface it with it depends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you okay. think about that also, because what Patty, I think what Patty might be also be asking is, is it different today than maybe five years ago or, or in my right. case, 38 right. years ago when I first started in this? So talk a little bit about how you come to that asset allocation, which is, as Patty clearly stated, is really what's, what percentage of my investment dollars are going to be in the – broad stock markets and how much is going to be in, in fixed income producing. Is that something you just say, well, oh, everybody's a 60-40 or it depends. And they, so walk people through a little bit about how you come to that allocation decision, which is a very important one, by the way, Patty.
2: Yeah, it, it's probably most people's, you know, big question is how how do I know I'm doing it right? Especially when the, the decision is I got to make sure I have enough to live from and not either underspend or overspend. Uh, But, Patty, to answer the question, it it depends on all of your uh, financial information. If you're having uh, a pension that you'll be able to draw from, you or a spouse, potentially, that is a fixed income source, or Social Security that will be a fixed income source. Those components are very real on how much you can choose to go up or down in your stock allocation. And without asking you those questions and and knowing the exact numbers, we won't do that. Um, But it just, it, it all comes down to, looking at those numbers and knowing what can be expected to show up with a high probability that you're not gonna lose your Social Security, you're probably not gonna lose a pension, um, and then looking at what is your actual need for spending in retirement. Um, and so you just say, well, if I need to have three or $4,000 a month and I know I'm getting an income source that's guaranteed more or less from Social Security or a pension, and I have a, a deficit of maybe $1,000 between what i'm receiving as a guaranteed source and what i need to make my life run as you define it uh... then you start backing into that number of how much you potentially would need to be putting in stocks versus bonds Um, and that decision too can be very widely dispersed as well if if you're the type of person that says i can pair back my spending very easily you have the ability or the luxury if you will to have a little higher stock allocation than the next person who says you know by heck or high water, I must have exactly $4,000 show up every single month. Well, then you're the type of person who doesn't have that luxury to have a higher stock allocation. You're going to need to have a lot more um, fixed income in that portfolio.
1: Is it fair to say, uh, well, I'll answer it because you know, you've know you been in the business for quite a while, but I have a little longer perspective. I don't make that decision any differently today than I did five years ago or 30 years ago. So I, and I guess that's part um, this, you know, mm-hmm. that I would tell Patty that, look, we're kind of agnostic about what returns are going to be in the future. We we deal with the distribution of returns and we have to have a plan that's prepared for horrible returns and still make it out alive. And it, when you do it that way, then there just become trade-offs between that allocation decision. And I think that's why you and I and all the guys, uh, always show, here's what maybe we'll show two or three different allocations and really we just show the trade-offs and, and it's really, I think life is really about trade-offs. Risk is about, you really don't ever get rid of risk, you just transform it. You're always shifting one risk for another. And so I think the short answer is uh, the same way we've always done it and has nothing to do with where the stock markets are or where the fixed income interest rates are today. It's really more about the plan that drives that allocation decision. I think that's fair. Uh, I have an email. Hi, thanks for taking my question. I really enjoy your show must be a relative (laughs) (laughs) my mother who is 80 owns a variable annuity from an insurance company that is in a IRA qualified so it's not it's a variable annuity in an IRA bad idea by itself it is invested in a moderately aggressive stock fund the annuity has a guaranteed lifetime benefit payment option but she has not exercised that option and is not interested in that option she has the option of taking the cash value but that will be subject to an immediate tax hit. That is, It's true if you took it out and just didn't keep it in an IRA and just spent it. Yes, that's true. Is it possible to roll the annuity over into a regular IRA account? Yes. And are there any other considerations you'd like to consider exploring? Well, if you can get out, so I'll, I'll take it first. First, I would want to assess the variable annuity. And anybody that's listened to this show and some of my commercials, it probably weren't as nice as they should have been mm-hmm. in the past. I'm getting older and nicer. Well, not according to my wife. <laughs> See, I'm getting crankier. But I, I'm just not a big fan of variable annuities, but that's not the question. But then putting a variable annuity into an IRA to me is just a really not not the, not the optimal, okay? Something I would never do, or probably never do, okay? I can't think at the top of my mind of a, of a valid reason to do that. So now I want to go in and say, okay, what are the true annual expenses? And good luck finding it out. You're, you have to be a mathematician almost. Uh, but, or you find an advisor, an independent advisor that says, hey, will you analyze this variable annuity and tell me what this is really costing me to own? You'll probably, this, this person will, uh, Mike will probably be shocked at how, what the internal expenses are. And I suspect want to undo that variable annuity. And if she's had it a long time, it sounds like can probably get out without what we call normally a surrender charge, which would be a way the, you know, these variable annuities might have commissions of seven, eight, nine percent And, of course, they tell the consumer that they're not paying it. The company's paying it. But then what the company does, it says, hey, if you leave any time in the first year, we're going to subtract 9% out. I'm broad brushing here. The second year it's eight, the third year it's seven, so that they can recoup that commission that they paid. So I reject the notion that the company's paying it as a benevolent institution. So you're gonna find out probably that's too high. So it really doesn't, as long as it stays in an IRA, I don't understand why there should be any problem. If If for some reason, I can't think of a reason it would need to stay in a variable annuity, if it's already wrapped in an IRA, get out of the annuity and move that cash or that money, the proceeds, to any IRA that you want. Right. Uh, and then you could then probably not buy another variable annuity. Um, again, the variable annuities, one of the benefits are tax deferral. <laughs> but IRAs already give you that benefit. So you, it's a very expensive benefit that you're paying a lot for typically that you don't need to. So I would ditch the annuity, keep it in an IRA, and then roll the IRA to somewhere else that
0: you, know, you get a little better treatment. That's probably what I would do. Yeah, there are all kinds of questions I don't know the answer to. Uh, what about a required minimum of distribution for a uh, variable annuity in an IRA? <laughs> well, you still have to take them. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, it's. A, I think it's a similar
1: calculation. It might be different. It might be treated a little different. Uh, I know, like, lifetime annuity, like those uh, qualified annuities, uh, deferred annuities. You know, there's some benefits there, but this is just a true variable annuity. And to me, you're going to have to take out required minimum distribution. And, you know, even if you're stuck in an annuity and you don't want to pay a surrender, they'll allow you typically to take 10% out in any year without a penalty. I don't know
0: what the size is, but it's possible you could even – Take it out gradually over several years if the mother is in a low tax bracket already, and get it out of the IRA. It,
1: yeah. So I mean, that depends. If you, yeah, if you're if you're on a mission, maybe convert it to a Roth con, you know, conversion. In other words, you're not stuck in that variable annuity. You're in an IRA, and you can put anything in and out of that IRA that's legal, and uh, shouldn't have any constraint at all. So there shouldn't be any tax issues as long as you keep the money. In an IRA, you control that decision.
0: Yeah, and just make i mean—make sure that it, what you said is true, that it's already uh, been there long enough that you don't have to pay any uh, substantial charges. Because a, a, a situation like this is you you would never advise anyone to get in it, but that's not the same thing as saying you should get out immediately if, if there are uh, surrender charges, things like well, that.
1: Well, so <laughs> I did years ago because one of the hardest things to do is somebody, they get in this uh, – variable annuity and cost them 2.5% a year. Not, not unusual, I've seen a lot of them that way. And you say, oh, you really shouldn't have bought that. And they go, oh, okay, maybe I should get out of it. And I said, well, if you get out of it, you're gonna pay 7% or 8%. And I haven't met one person that is willing to actually incur that loss. Because psychologically, it's just too difficult. So I thought, well, oh, math, you're paying for it one way or another. So I created a calculator spreadsheet that basically did. I used the insurance company's own math, assuming you earn five percent. So it's not assuming you earn higher rate or a lower rate. Just is that deferral and and paying that penalty worth it? The vast majority of the time, you're still better off, even if the next day you get out of that thing, because, in other words, if you're paying two and a half percent a year, in four years you've paid ten percent. So there's that crossover, and some you know. So I just basically you have the ability now to show them, look, if you get out now, here's where you'll be in five years, assuming the same rate of return. If you wait two years or three years, and every time the math gets them, they go, oh, what this is saying is I'm better off getting out today and paying that surrender charge. Easier said than done. Mathematically, it's true most of the time, but even still, people have a very difficult time saying, "Ooh, I made a mistake that's going to cost me $8,000 $8,000 or $80,000 or $30,000 surrender fee. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, which is really why most people don't belong in variable annuities to begin with. And if you do belong in a variable annuity, go to a fair one like, a, I don't know if Vanguard's doing them anymore, but there are certain annuity companies now that charge very modest fees and you're not locked into them and there's no commissions involved. So to me, variable annuities are always something that have been sold, never been purchased, that is, I think the commission is just too much of a pull for people that sell them many times. Not hundred percent, so I'm not. I don't want to blast everybody, but well, also, more often than not, that's been my experience.
0: Not just sold, but sometimes resold, <laughs> which is even worse.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, look, people in the Midwest, particular, are very trusting, and uh, and so I don't, you know, I I don't make fun of people that buy variable annuities. It's not really their fault. They were t- everything they were told was sort of true but i found very few people that once i told them exactly what they were paying and what the conditions were and by the way the life insurance can, the company can change the deal anytime they want nobody if if somebody came in off the street and said hey i'm thinking about buying this variable annuity paul what do you think 99 out of 100 are going to walk out saying i'm not buying it so yeah, I, think we, I think i pounded that one <laughs> up, yeah. yeah we don't hear that
0: as much anymore i don't know whether uh the information is getting out or not but the, the radio ads are not nearly as prevalent as they used to be
1: no uh and, and you're right you know i there was certainly i think there was much more abuse years ago i think there's still some and that's why i felt obligated to do commercials uh that were, were talked about against the idea of buying variable annuities because i felt like something had to be said out there from somebody who was independent that didn't sell variable annuities um so good luck with mom. I think you'll figure it out, but just probably get out of the variable annuity. Keep it in an IRA, and life will go on in peaceful. Anything on that, Ryan? That you need to add?
2: No, just just like Doctor Gertz said. Do so you think making... people should buy variable annuities? No, <laughs> I think that's for the, the most part. I think that's your summary. But yeah, just making sure that you don't incur a surrender fee or charge. That's the important thing to check on before you do anything.
1: Fred, the National Association of Realtors, they just recently reported was last month. Uh, construction of new housing in the past 20 years running at five and a half million units short five and a half million units short of the long-term historical levels americans in their 30s they're expanding rapidly four and a half million more people in the 30 to 39 year olds in 2020 than 2010 so it's kind of int- no wonder housing prices in certain areas and at certain prices seems like it's almost a national thing there's been quite a bit of inflation in most housing, but it kind of makes sense, the confluence of those two
0: things happening all at once. Right. I think if people uh, somehow uh, during the uh, COVID crisis decided that uh, if you can't go out, maybe you want to have a better in and wanted to have a nicer house or a bigger house, not only is this this a totally uh, uh, casual kind of observation, but it seems like there's a huge amount of of not just people buying new houses, but people improving their existing houses. So again, that's uh, something that's happening. Uh, uh, Economists, I would probably argue that, uh, unlike the realtors, that we don't really have an underinvestment in real estate. We probably, uh, like you're talking about, maybe have expectations too high. A lot of people might want to think about conserving on the amount of space and so on, and using their extra savings for other other things. So I'm not sure that uh, From a a standpoint of advising people, that it's necessary to go out and buy the biggest house you can, but again, the realtors obviously would would uh, like that.
1: I think so. You know, I had a saying with my sons and my daughter. I said, "Look, just because the bank says you can afford that, or you know, or says that they'll give you the loan, doesn't mean you can afford it. There's a big difference between those two things." And You know, it's been my experience, Uh, you know, you double the size of your house, you really don't double the size of your enjoyment. And I've had a lot of my friends that are very wealthy that said, yeah, you know, it's pretty cool for a few months, but next thing you know, you know, there's some marginal utility to it, but it's certainly not twice if you pay, if you double up your house. And I, I think that's probably important. It's pretty easy to get house poor. I'd be tempted to, I'd be interested, you think, Fred. Would you be, would you counsel a young couple so assuming they had steady type of jobs yeah. and, you know, pretty sticky jobs. You know, they're probably not likely to be unemployed anytime soon. With interest rates at epic lows for 30-year mortgages, is that a time, do you think, to stretch maybe beyond what you might
0: do at a 5 or 6% mortgage? Uh, a little bit, but I think also the, the fact is that housing prices reflect the low interest rates as sure. well. Yeah, so, that's so you're uh, you're already being stretched by... Uh, getting a, lo- a low interest rate but paying a higher price for the, the home. So, again, I think it, it should be what you need. And, and again, I, I think that uh, most people need a, a certain amount of space maybe for a decade or two. And then once the children right. leave, uh, you're stuck with Fred, they extra never leave. space. They <laughs> never leave, Fred.
1: And they don't they not leave. They, they, they recreate other <laughs> kids that come into your house. Right. And then all of a sudden your wife says, hey, I need a bigger dining room table. Yeah. to feed all these people, where they come from? Uh, by the way Freddie Mac who of course is the mortgage finance entity says there's a national deficit of three and a half, and a half 3.8 million single-family homes that's 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 pretty good shortage I knew we weren't building enough Um,
0: but there's also the question of uh, can people afford it The, the the other story is that I'm burdened by college debt and I'd like to be in a situation where I could buy a home but I'm not able to right now so again wanting to is not the same as being able to to do it
1: yeah, that that the college debt thing seems to have really bit people. Uh, uh you know, I'm not sure it's going to be uh replicated in the future.
0: Yeah. I think people maybe have learned a lesson that they were oversold on the idea that And again, uh, uh, still for for a vast majority of people, investing in a college education is a really good investment better than buying stocks or bonds or anything if, else, but but if you invest in a and a master's degree and uh, something that uh, no prospect ever getting a job that's obviously a different uh, right different case.
1: so you'd say well the statistics clearly show that people the higher the education at a broad brush the yeah. higher the income levels and standard of living but maybe not go out and borrow a hundred percent of something where this really not a marketable right. degree uh, I think that's clearly been oversold uh, to people my kids Fred and Ryan, I know, you know, they're all saving massively for <laughs> college education. And here's grouchy old Paul saying, I think you guys are overdoing it. I just don't <laughs> think it's going to cost that much yeah. in the future. I could be wrong. And so I'm not the one that has, if I'm wrong, yeah. I could be wrong, but their kids still need the money to go to college. So I could be wrong, but it doesn't mean I'm going to pay for it, Ryan. Exactly. There's a shortage. Um, a little good news. I think it's always good to talk about good news. We get bombarded with, uh, enough bad news like everything's bad you know there's always a dark cloud even if there's a silver lining uh the economist pointed out that big tech firms uh accounted for which account for about a third of all the capital expenditures in the country uh are they're investing 30 percent more than they did in 2019 and that's probably significant fred when you think about it it's technology tends to be the driver of productivity and right. productivity is, is what increases people's standards of living. I mean that to me that's right. that's a very positive thing. You know we're not that far far away from what you know the debacle that we had, the economic debacle, the most most expensive self-inflicted wound in mankind. And here we have these major tech companies have right. 30% more going into research development and technology, increased technology,
0: than they did right. just a couple of years ago. Well, I think that's true. There's this kind of um, puzzle or conundrum about uh, where is it going because if you look at uh, things I do on- online and all kinds of things like that, I don't pay very much for it, but there's a huge increase in my uh, uh, consumption of that. And so some of this tech stuff is – giving us lots of benefits, but it doesn't necessarily show up in our, our GDP numbers.
1: It, it's, it's kind of a natural uh, def, deflationary uh, technology. Is, if you really look at the areas, if, when you look at this inflation over the last 10 or 20 years, you, know, you see uh, hospital, you know, medical care yeah. way up and college education way up. But you know, anything that's been uh, impacted by technology is, had, has been a defa- deflationary trend. Um, That's why I don't get too keyed up about overall general levels of inflation. I think the more it strikes me that maybe medical, uh, the medical Uh, care side of things need more technology. And maybe that can even help solve some of those rising costs. Um, So I have a lot of hope there. I think there's a lot of hope. Yeah,
0: The the other good news is really good news. And uh, that is conditionally. how many people would expect to be where we are today compared to uh, My. 18 months ago. Well,
1: I'm just gonna read you something. A couple of things first. Uh, S&P 500 companies, uh, looks like they'll earn maybe a record one and a half trillion dollars in 2021, topping 1.3 trillion they earned in 2019. I mean, th- th- you might, I mean, you might yawn at that if not for shutting down the economy. Right. And according to CNBC data, household net worth, this is, to me, this is magical. Household net worth rose to $136.9 trillion in the first quarter, a 3.8% gain from the end of 2020. The gain came amid a 7% increase in the S&P 500 that boosted equity wealth by $3.2 trillion. I mean, that's pretty mind-boggling to me. But here's what I think is just as important if you look at, because, of course, in that they have to tell you in that statistic, well, household debt totaled $16.9 trillion, growing at the fastest pace, It's like if, as if that's a dark cloud. Except when you look at the ratio of total debt to total household assets, which I do, they're down to about where it was 50 years ago. Right. Uh, so when you think about right now we have a population with the most cash it's ever had, the best balance sheet it's ever had, Yeah, I, mean, um, I think that's a pretty positive right. statement. And I don't think there's a dark... I think the media tries to put this dark lining, dark cloud amongst all these silver linings and saying, well, yeah, that debt went up. But without putting it in any type of historical perspective, we never hear that.
0: Yeah, the new problem, at least for people who are uh, in a, a good situation, is how do you transfer the all the savings to the next generation? So there was a long article in the Wall Street Journal about all the trillions of dollars are going to have to be transferred the next uh, oh, it's decade a, a, a or two. unprecedented. Uh, uh, compared to either uh, give it to your... your uh, relatives or uh, give it to charity, but that's, that's a, a pretty nice problem to have to deal with if you're in that situation. Well, I'd say
1: the next 10 or 15 years, we're going to see a transfer of wealth that we've never seen before. Yeah, some people will see that as a bad thing, I suppose. I don't know how. So, through the first half of the year, the S&P 500 is up almost 14.5%. That's not so bad. Um, looks like earnings at the beginning of the year, people thought that the earnings for the S&P 500 would be about 165 now they're saying it's probably 200 and it's rising all the time. I think that's that bodes well. However, I have this fear Fred that a lot of this is baked into current stock prices. You know, yeah. I think it sure. I think it may be more difficult to get much higher returns in the near future. Right.
0: I think we I think we've probably adapted. But uh, it's, it's also uh, I think generally hard to understand uh where we are right now uh, again it's such a surprise uh, I, I follow the state of illinois revenue so if you look at the end of uh fiscal year 2019 the one before the crisis uh we have much larger revenues the last 12 months than we did uh two years ago so someone said well you're gonna have this huge shutdown the whole world is gonna right. be changed yep. and you end up uh in a better situation as far as revenues are concerned. It's kind of a a surprising situation. And this is not the federal government giving money to the state, it's just, um, uh, and again, uh, I don't think anyone fully understands what's going on there. And I think it's gonna take
1: a lot of increased earnings to keep this market going, it's my guess, because a lot of these things aren't gonna be repeatable. So we're gonna have these massive earnings beats, but again, it's comparing year over year and things like that. But even actual dollars, they're Mm. doing pretty well. How about this? So the peak of the stock market before the pandemic was February 19th, of 2020. S&P 500, which is the standard, board's 500, the 500 largest companies, is the index of the 500 large, largest companies in the U.S., closed on that day at 3,386. Well, shortly in the next 33 days or so, it would have swooned, declined by 34%. Pretty good shocker. I mean, it was amidst the worst world's worst global crisis in a while um, but if you bought that index and we're still holding it on June 30th of this year your total return with reinvested dividends would have been about 28% it's hard to imagine it's hard to even think of that it's yeah. like wait a minute um, let's have a contest it's January 19th <laughs> 2020 here's what's going to happen as far as can world conditions you know Give me a shot of where we'll be, uh, you know, in a roughly a year and a half. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think there would. i might be surprised if there were any positive numbers.
0: Yeah. if you, I probably would have. Yeah. If Phenomenal. you had if you, if you told a, a market timer, what should you do? the, the And you had this uh, foreknowledge of all the things that are going to happen. You say, well, you want to go into cash immediately and, and uh, protect yourself. and You would have this huge loss if you had done that. Yeah. I don't think
1: I've ever seen or will ever see a more vivid demonstration of what Peter Lynch, Peter Lynch who was the uh, ma- manager of the Fidelity Magellan Fund, just one of the best track records on planet earth, but he had a dictum that was the real key to making money in stocks is not to get scared out of them. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've seen a more vivid example of, of what, a, what a mistake it would have been to pull out somewhere within that decline. Um, just again once again illustrating just how difficult it is to continuously try to gain
2: a timing advantage over the market it's just it's fraught with peril yeah and I think you know this is always a good example you can come back to it's obviously an extreme example I wouldn't use this as like this is what you should expect a year later obviously 28% returns would be amazing if we could expect that but we know we can't without a a pandemic right exactly without a 34% drop in 30 some days um, happening in between those two events. But I think it does give, you know, the, the good reminder that even at um, market highs, when people are often careful or hesitant to maybe consider contributions, that, you know, this is just the nature of investing in stocks if you take a long enough view. If you take a short view, and you, know, you think, you know, I've only got a year to live. Well, oh, you, know, yeah. you know, of course, that, that that there's too much variability. But if you take a long enough view, you know, a lifetime view. A, a yeah. lifetime view, like you call it, or a long-term view, as others call it. You know, it, it's, of course you're going to see higher numbers. There's no, uh, uh, The new high will be next, you know, year's highs will be sure. so much higher. So it's like always you have to zoom out, and you can't let yourself get too, too closely viewed.
1: It's kind of like uh, back when the Dow was around 10,000. Uh, it was a common question of, hey, what do you think the market's going to do in the near term? I'd say, well, I don't know the direction of the next 1,000 points up or down, but I could tell you the direction of the next 10,000 points with a lot of confidence. And me and my family are going to, and you and your family probably, are going to want every one of those points and may very well need every one of those points. So I was always trying to say, you know, it's kind of irrelevant what happens in the near term for a lifetime investor. Mm -hmm. For someone who's building a cottage next year, obviously this wouldn't apply. That money doesn't belong in the great companies of America and the world. Well, now we have the Dow above 30,000 and people worried about the next three or 4,000 point decline. And I would probably say, well, I don't know the direction of the next three or four or 5,000 points, but I know the direction of the next 30,000 points. And that's really all that matters to me and my family. Um, and when you really think about 20 years from now, I fully expect the Dow Jones to be above 90,000. And that sounds like a real crapshoot, but it's barely a return over 5% a year. So when you think in a twenty-year time horizon, that will probably be at Dow. You know, like I said, I got I have to say that's just Paul's theory. It's we don't. There's no facts about the future. My if my theory holds up, we'll be at Dow ninety thousand. By then, twenty years, and what's it really matter if you're a lifetime investor? What happens in the next few months? It just right. doesn't. Right. And uh, I think without that perspective, well, wait a minute. If if he's right. We're going to see 90000 in my lifetime. I guess I'm not going to spend a lot of worrying about it whether we get to $25,000 1st yep. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys. Well, Fred, this is from James Ottenson book, who I'm going to read the whole thing. His new book, Seven Deadly Economic Sins. I thought this was fascinating, and I'm an optimist, so it's always nice to see the data. That you're mm-hmm. probably familiar with all this. He writes, The average person alive in 1800 was no wealthier than the average human 100,000 years ago. That's hard to get your mind around, but it's probably largely true. Both live le- lives on less than $3 per person per day in contemporary dollars. By contrast, the average person alive in the world today enjoys 48 today, a 16%, 16-fold percent, increase. In the United States, it's $164 per day, 55-fold real increase. That's net of inflation. In 1900, Approximately 90% of all people on earth lived at the lowest historical average of $3 per person per day Which the United Nations defined as absolute poverty today that number is approximately 9% is falling rapidly. I mean, that's Doesn't surprise you. I mean you no. this is this is your life, but I think to a lot of people We're not okay. being taught this we're not right. being told of the immense yeah. You know, good
0: things that have happened well, well, in a you know,
1: brief period of time.
0: Yeah, you know, people think that, well, uh, economies grow. If you go back 2,000 years and grew at 1%, we <laughs> would be sure. uh, far beyond here. So basically, not much happened for uh, uh, the first uh, 18 centuries. than the last two have been really uh, dynamic, and even more so in the period from uh, the 1880s until the 1970s. Uh, so again, we had this huge increased. Now we're not growing quite as fast. We're still growing really, uh, really sure. high by historical standards. So a 2% growth rate is something that we are not uh, thrilled about, but that's fantastic by by a long-term kind of historical standard.
1: He writes, we're on the brink of reducing the proportion of people living in absolute poverty to zero. An incredible achievement, though though one that almost no one seems to know about. Right. That's the part I was getting to. Yeah. It's, it's like the best news that
0: uh, nobody, well, everybody's focused to kind of I think a lot of people are just generally pessimistic. Well, even better I, maybe is the fact that uh, not only are people living at a higher income level, they're living a decade or two longer, and it's True. not just in really rich countries. Uh, most countries that go beyond the absolute poverty level have huge increases in, in longevity, so you don't have to be uh, United States or um, Eastern uh, Western Europe to right. have uh, uh, 70, 80 uh, lifespans. Yeah and so
1: and then finally Nobel laureate Edmund Phelps calls it a mass flourishing. For the first time in human history even the low the disrespected and the disenfranchised have been able to improve their conditions and to an extent never seen before. Yeah and do you uh, think
0: most people feel that way? No I don't think so and again uh, if if someone says uh, isn't inequality terrible uh, isn't it getting worse well the, the answer is it is getting more unequal in the United States but if you look at the world the world is much more uh, uh, much more uh, equality among uh, different people in different parts of the world than it was 50 or 100 years ago. So this huge decrease in poverty has occurred in you know, countries like China and India and even more so in Taiwan and Korea and places like that. So it, it doesn't necessarily mean the United States is growing at those rates, right. but it's really been a, a fantastic change. And it's not just a uh, a little country here and there, Luxembourg right. or someplace like that, or, or Singapore, it's the huge, uh, the two biggest countries in the world have been yeah. growing pretty rapidly. So the gains are uneven, yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, you know, And that's, but, one of the, that's one of the uh, the problems we have in the United States, that if you have a worldwide labor market and you're competing against people in all these other places and they're doing well, it means that people with low skills in the United States, aside from service industries, ha- have some pretty hard times, as that's been the, been the case.
1: Well, it strikes me that you know even with that unevenness uh, throughout the world, almost all of us are gaining and yeah. some and some people gaining more all the time right uh, well, I guess more people gaining each year is probably a better way to think of it, yeah so I just wanted to go out on that cheery note i don 't you know we get bombarded by so much negative right. uh, you know news and media, or sometimes it 's not even news it 's just shocks yeah. that. Sometimes it's helpful for me, at least, to back up and say, "Wow, what a, what yeah. a, what an incredible job!" Mainly fueled by this country, yeah. uh, taught a lot of people. Well, we got to run with that. So, thanks. We'll be back in two weeks for more of Paul Rudy's on the money. Thanks for listening.
0: Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's on the money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.